Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hey, this is Vicki. Together, we are Moms Going Boldly. Today we are talking about the second episode of the second season of Star Trek Discovery, an episode entitled, New Eden. And welcome back. This is Moms Going Boldly. Today we are talking about the second episode in Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery, an episode entitled New Eden. And Vicki and I have talked about this a little bit more uh, already, but uh, right off the bat, Vicki, I would like you to let me know what you thought of this episode. Well, like I said earlier when we were talking off air, I really did like this episode. It reminded me of uh, the original series. They were on an away mission, um, undercover on an away mission. And I just liked everything about it. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a wonderful episode. It was a ship in the bottle episode, which I, I like, but it had these really interesting threads for us to follow uh, over the course of the next season. Um, I loved how it had the away mission component, as you mentioned, as well as you know a, a technological problem that needed cleverness and skill to solve. And it just, it just, it. it ticked a lot of boxes for me. I was really excited by this episode. This episode starts off with another um, red burst that the crew needs to investigate. And when they finally figure out where it's coming from, they realize it's coming from, you know, 50,000 light years away in the beta quadrant. And the only way to get there is to use the spore drive, which had been shut down because the Federation was not happy that Stamets had injected himself with DNA tardigrade or tardigrade DNA and that it was also difficult for him to use the spore drive because he had encountered Hugh while he was in the mycelium network and this was difficult for him. But he goes ahead and does the navigation for them and they travel the uh, 50,000 light years away. and, and there was a funny moment. Remember last week when you were talking about how you really like how they're starting to engage in the humor again, like they did in the original series? I, I loved how when Captain Pike experienced the spore jump, he kind of went, woo and, and Saru said, you never forget you first. <laughs> it was a wonderful comic moment. So you had been talking about, you and I had been talking about this issue with Stamets and I had interpreted Stamets as leaving the navigation area with this very unhappy look on his face that he had encountered Hugh again in the mycelium network and it hurt him but you had another really interesting theory 
My theory was that he, as much as he says he doesn't want to encounter Hugh because he'll, he'll never want to leave there, I think he's disappointed that he didn't encounter Hugh. Which is... I think in the back of his mind, he's looking forward to seeing him again. It's and really insane. Although we don't know that he didn't. Yeah. I took it as he didn't. Um, and when he didn't, he was angry. Yeah, and I think that's really insightful. And very much in line with Stamets' character, if that's the case. So we have our folks um, arriving at this planet in the Beta Quadrant, and they can find no evidence of the red bursts or what causes them. But what they do find is a distress call that is 200 years old, coming from a colony of humans. So they find this, these humans that have lived, been living on this planet for 200 years that are in no obvious distress. And they also are pre-warp. They don't even have electricity. And so Captain Pike decides to go down incognito with Burnham and also Awosakun, who Burnham says would be good to take with them because she lived in a Luddite colony. And I thought that was fascinating to imagine a Luddite colony in the Federation. What did you think of that? You remember all these names of things. <laughs> Well, Luddites are people. And characters, <laughs> aliens, and I don't. I so I don't. I have no idea what a Luddite colony is. Well, I probably do, but I don't remember it by name. Yeah, the Luddites were people who were, you know, in the 19th century, very anti-machine. And they are usually. It, it can be the word Luddite can be used as a pejorative to describe somebody who won't accept a modern convenience or modern technology. So the idea of a Luddite colony is a group of people who refuse to use modern technology. Well, that's strange. Yeah. But okay. it's yeah, it's interesting to imagine this on Earth. But it also then made Awosakun a great. Uh, person for the away mission because she would be very comfortable in this environment that they were beaming down to. Why? How did she end up on a start? That's uh, see, that's another excellent question, and th that's like it's like. Did you get a chance to watch those Trek shorts? I watched. Um, I think the only one I didn't see was the one with Tilly. Okay. Because I watched them. I don't know what order they were supposed to be in. Right. So I got excited when. I saw <laughs> Aldous Hodge, and I thought he was going to be a character. Right. And then I was disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was really good in that short. But I was, I, that's all I saw, his face, and I was like, oh my God, they're going to have him on Star Trek. <laughs> Well, it's, it's the same. I, I'm hoping that they do some kind of short on Awosakun because, you know, they did that short on Saru's story of how he came to the Federation. And, and I agree, it would be really fascinating to see how Awosakun came to the Federation. So this group that they're beaming down to, they are able to ascertain even before they leave that there's a very strong faith component to this, the colonies culture and it begins a conversation on board discovery which then you know translates down also onto the planet about faith and science uh, that I, I kind of I really enjoyed what did you what did you think of that sort of discussion between Pike and Burnham about faith and science well it was it kind of brought back deep space nine a little bit yeah 
basically yeah and I always thought that Deep Space Nine ha handled the faith arcs really well they did yes they did they did um, but yeah Burnham's just matter of fact and it's almost there were times when she looked at him as if and, and maybe that was just me that, that she thought less of him for having this knowledge and having faith. It's all about science and how could you have faith in anything that you, know, you can't see. Interesting. Uh, I, I always, I guess I was reading her uh, expressions more as her just not agreeing. No, she absolutely did not agree. Understand. It's just that he, I think he was, I think he was offering her perspectives that she were very foreign to her. Yeah. So anyway, okay, so we get down on the planet and they come to realize that, you know, whatever the faith that's supporting this culture has been compiled, it's an amalgamation of all the faiths of Earth. And so they gathered that, you know, these people were all different faiths who were brought there. And then in order to get along, they kind of merged them together. And they're discovered in the church. And by this one gentleman whose name is Jacob. And Jacob believes they're from a more advanced culture. They're from Earth. And that all that they, they, they realized they learned that the, these were survivors from World War three and that they were brought to this planet by a red angel and that they believed that no one had survived World War three on earth but Jacob believed it and he was the one that actually rigged some kind of power to keep the distress call going because he believed that someone would eventually find them and that you know they would learn that earth survived and grew and developed and now had you know interstellar interspace travel and so he's not wrong but they can't tell him that and so then there's some tension because you know Jacob's making these claims to his community and the community's like no no that's that's not what happened and they're like no no that's not what happened we just come from the north and then a little girl pulls a phaser out of one of the bags that had been sitting to the side, you know, Captain Pike's bag, and he leaps into action to stop her from accidentally hurting herself, and he's badly injured. And I thought Burnham was awesome here when she said, we need to take him to the church to, to pray. <laughs> she really... Yeah I, I, yeah, I don't know what else a person would have said, though. Right, but I, it was fantastic. She was so matter-of-fact about it. She didn't even look uncomfortable. She was just like, I'm going to be in my the role, the character I'm playing in this you know, away mission, and she did it really well. And so they go into the church, but as they're beaming away, Jacob and some other people in the community come in, and they see them beaming away. 
And of course, it's really, I thought it was wonderful. Right at that moment, there's this wonderful example of what faith means. The, the, the leader of the community sees them beaming away and says, the red angel is saving them. And Jacob sees them beaming away, and he has faith in the survival of the human race, and he says they, they are going back to their ship, to himself. And it's, they're two different kinds of faith that they each had, and what they're seeing confirms it for them. It's a great moment, and it's so small. I mean, they don't, the, 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 the story doesn't linger on that moment. We move right on to Pike getting his ribs, you know, repaired. So meanwhile, there's another storyline that's going on in the same time. So while they're on Planet Bound, we've got Tilly, who's trying to figure out this alternative uh, method of tra tra you know transporting them on the mycelial network with the big asteroid that they captured in their cargo bay. Because this way, if she could figure out how to do it, Stamets won't have to go back into the network and he won't be tormented anymore. And she's injured while she's doing this. And we, she wakes up in sick bay, having been injured while trying to work with this very powerful substance. And Saru gives her a lecture. What do you think of Saru's lecture to her? And she wakes up in sick bay? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you know, he, he doesn't, he, he thinks that she's capable of being, you know, in this program that she's in and she's going off on her own doing what Burnham would do. I really liked that Saru was trying to support her and encourage her to do her best but not to go overboard and, yeah. you know, injure herself. And I liked how he used his own example of, you know, being the only member of a species in Starfleet and carrying that huge burden and sometimes pushing it too far. <laughs> but there's very interesting thing happens when Saru leaves sickbay. Or actually, no, Saru's there. And there's another crewman there, too, by the name of May. Right. And May, I think, said that she was the one that found Tilly in the... Car she said she was there when it happened. Right, right. And then we see May later on. But she, was there. she showed up before Saru entered the room. She woke Tilly up. That's right. And because she woke Tilly up, Tilly's in sick pay, she's injured, and she this crewman is waking her up. I knew she wasn't real because she's in sick pay, she's injured. Nobody should be waking her up except for the doctor. So first, I thought she was having a dream. Rue and the doctor came in, and they really didn't interact with her, and she didn't interact with them. I thought Tilly was having hallucinations. Okay. Then later on, like it was her subconscious helping her problem solve. Yeah. Then later on, when she was leaving the bridge, and she calls her Stilly or whatever she calls her, I'm thinking, oh, I bet you she's going to be her imaginary friend from when she was little. Yeah. But then later, when Tilly found out she was dead, this is kind of off the white rails, when Tilly found out who she was and that she had died, I was thinking she was like, um, 
what's his name, Stamets made a big deal about telling Tilly in this episode about how Hugh helped him through the mycelium network. Yes. So I was thinking that this May is Tilly's guide. guide. Yeah. Because she helped her problem solve this whole thing. Plus, remember the little spark that she got when Lorca blew up. Yeah. But So this is probably a little off the rails, but that I thought because Stamets decided to tell her in this episode how he was the one who helped him through the mycelium network, that maybe this May is Tilly's guide. Which is a wonderful idea. I did not actually clue in that uh, May wasn't real until the second encounter with her when they were, you know, bantering with each other and there was a lot of, you know, uh, brainstorming that they were doing. And May said something about, you know, Tilly said something about, you're reading my mind. And May said, oh, your mind is fascinating or something like that. And then I was like, okay, she's not real. But I love this idea of her being the guide. I think that's amazing. And one of the things that, I came away with from this episode was all of these sort of wonderful I don't even know how to explain it but you know there was this Stamets talking about Hugh being helping him and now we see May helping Tilly and then we get the impression as the episode moves forward that these red angels or these red bursts were trying to help these people on that planet it was a red angel that rescued them from you know destruction in world war three and there's also this idea that the red burst brought discovery there in order to save these people on the planet from a uh, radiation in coming from the rings surrounding the planet and we should really talk about that part of the episode because of course that was the technological solution and skill moment that i love <laughs> What did you think of this uh, the, this sort of sea storyline where the rings somehow released radioactive particles and Discovery feels compelled to stop them from killing everyone on the planet? Yeah, um, I, they set, they're setting it up for us to think who this this red angel or this red these red lights were the people who saved the inhabitants of this planet from on earth and also that they set it up for the discovery to come and save these people again except that after the first season i don't know that i trust what they set us up for <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, you know, they're, they're uh, I don't know, I don't know. Well, I, I, for the moment, and I agree with you, there's always this sort of background, oh, what are they, how are they tricking us kind of thing. But for the moment, I really enjoyed the positives that we kept seeing over and over again, that there was actually... It wasn't just discovery against the universe being the only source of compassion and assistance to be found. So in the meantime, we've got discovery trying to stop this radiation from hitting the planet. And they come up with this really 
fascinating solution where they dump part of the asteroid because it has a really huge gravitational mass to then pull the radioactive particles away from the planet. And it requires that Detmer <laughs> do a donut with a starship. <laughs> yeah, that, that, whole, that whole scene was cute. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. It, that, that, I decided that's yeah. what I was probably going to name the podcast was Donut with a Starship. Because <laughs> it was the best part of the episode. <laughs> so they do some fancy flying. And there's a little bit of Stamets doing mycelial work in order to make the fancy flying easier. And they succeed in pulling the radioactive particles away from the planet. And then there's a really good conversation with Burnham and Pike back on board Discovery because Burnham is actually arguing that Jacob has a right to know the truth, that his faith needs to be validated. What did you think of that conversation? I get away, she's writing. You know, yes, they're not supposed to interfere with a pre-war civilization, but they were originally from Earth. And this guy's family has been sending that beacon out for 200 years. And he needs to know that he's right. Well, I'm not sure I agree with Burnham on the grounds of just because he's human and deserves to know kind of thing. I I wanted to them to tell Jacob because I wanted them to tell Jacob because you know when you see a character like that that character represents us and we want to know so we can totally relate to that character wanting to know. But from the standpoint of you know general order 1 whose faith deserves more validation? I mean, did, did did the people who believed in the Red Angel's faith deserve validation? And if they had that kind of validation, should the Discovery crew have given that to them as well as to Jacob? Where they came down on this idea that they needed the helmet cam from a soldier's helmet from 2053 so that they could better understand how these people were transplanted from the middle of a war zone to this planet. That made sense. It was a good argument. It was a good ra- it was a good rationalization. But I didn't I didn't necessarily agree with Burnham on just the whole we should tell him because he deserves to know kind of premise. Because if the situation were reversed and they had information on the red angels, would they have had the right to interfere with the faith on those on from that angle? So it was just interesting, but I was glad that they found a way to give Jacob what he wanted. And so the very last scene, or one of the last scenes, is Pike returning to the planet in full uniform and confirming with Jacob that, yep, we're from Earth, and yep, we survived, and yep, we fly through the space, fly through the stars with our spaceship, and here, I'm going to give you this power module, which I thought was very odd. (laughs) And they lit up the church with a new power module. What did you... 
that that was one of the big things that they told them about was the, the lights you know once the batteries died the lights went out in the church yeah and that family's been working for years to get the lights back on in the church because pilgrimages to the church have dwindled because they don't have the lights on yeah what did you think of his giving him that power pack They had lights in the church before, so I I know <laughs> I'm more likely to bend general order one than you are. <laughs> I was. They had, they had lights in the. I guess, but you know, I don't know. It, they gave them they gave them technology, which techno which theoretically could have spurred a technological leap, taking them out of their natural course of evolution. Which is what General Order One is trying to avoid. So, but you know, I think it was probably harmless. But it was kind of funny, and it gives us a real idea of what kind of Captain Pike is. He's going to be a little bit more. Yeah. And, and and in the end, Jacob wasn't. That's all he needed. Yeah, you're right. That's it exactly. He didn't. He got his faith confirmed, and he was content. Right, and he didn't ask to go with them. He wasn't going to tell anybody else. Yep. He had his lights for the church, and the other people probably how the lights, you know, they're not going to, he's not going to tell them how the lights are on. He's been working for years and years and years to get the lights back on. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, he's done it. Yep. I think you're exactly right. So it was it was harmless. But I also like how it shows us that Pike is going to process information not only through his head but also through his heart, which I it, you know I think in in the long run makes a really good captain. So the very last scene of this episode, they get the helmet cam working, and we see video evidence of this red angel figure appearing before the camera stops recording mm -hmm. so we're left at the end of the episode with this mystery we have several mysteries we have did Stamet see Hugh in the mycelium network or did he was he disappointed that he didn't see him and who is May why is May showing up is she a guide is it something else and what are these red angels are they a force for good are they not so some really interesting questions that we're going to need to have answered as the series progresses so out of 10, what would you give this episode? Uh, nine and a half. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... I really did like this one. I did too. I would, I would be nine or 10 as well. It was right up there with magic to make the sanest men go mad for me. It was yeah. that good. So next episode, we actually do have an episode title this time. It's called Point of Light. And apparently we get to see... Ash Tyler again, and Laurel, and Amanda. Well, maybe we'll see Spock, or maybe that will come later. And as we learned in this episode, Spock is actually in a mental health institution. Right. Which is an interesting turn. So we have that mystery to solve, too. Well, we invite our listeners to join us next time when we talk about the third episode in Season 2, point of light. Thank you for joining us.
You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at momsgoingboldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter at Ross Bugden, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. Transfer complete.